Scared money don't make money. You are listening to Inside the Tunnel, presented by VT Scoop on 247sports.com. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back in action. It's the new year. It's the new us. Uh, we are back covering the Belk Bowl, joined by Doug. Doug, how was your New Year's? New Year was good. Um, I don't know about a new us. I think it's still pretty much the same thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, nothing nothing crazy. How, how was uh, spending the New Year down in Charlotte? It was interesting. Uh, Charlotte's a nice place under a lot of construction. Uh, saw a lot of happy Kentucky fans. Uh, a lot of gloomed and doomed Virginia Tech fans. Um, but I'm hopeful for a better year. Uh, it was a rough end to the year with uh, and beginning to the year with the sporting events. But uh, starting with the Belk Bowl, uh, we could talk a little bit about the basketball game against Virginia after that. But Belk Bowl, Kentucky comes out on top 37-30. to 30. Tough game all the way around. What were your first uh Im- impressions of it yeah tough uh tough way to finish the year especially you know after i guess they were eight and three and then lost the final two games of the year kind of killed that six and one stretch there they had there in the middle of the year but it was just another one of those games just like the uva game where you felt like if tech could get the one stop after a score um you felt like the offense was moving was doing basically what they wanted to do and tech had control of the game. And if they could just get that one final stop that gave them the ball back to score again, they could really, um, really pull away with it, but wasn't meant to be Lynn Bowden. Obviously we talked about him a whole lot leading up to it. And he did basically what everyone thought he would do in terms of controlling the game and, um, basically winning the game by himself. So, Tough loss, but um, you know, I don't think I don't think it dims what what Virginia Tech has going forward for them. But obviously, you would 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 have wanted them to to finish that one off. Yeah, and it was crazy from the get go. Lynn Bowden, we talked about him as the highlight player, the guy that pretty much carries their offense. A wide receiver converted to quarterback that's just running whatever he wants. Just the high school offense where he gets the ball and. Whatever he wants to make happen, he will. Before the game even starts, swinging at Deshaun Crawford in warm-ups. Without a shirt, by the way. I don't know what kind of move that is. Kind of a psycho move. Um, but anyways, you, it was interesting that, you know, even before this game started, you know, the Kentucky could have been without their top overall player. Yeah, that was clearly the story going in and... Um... It felt kind of weird, like Tuesday afternoon on ESPN. It's like 11 a.m. and they're showing clips of a punch thrown at the belt pole in Charlotte. Um, just a weird situation. I, I he clearly threw the punch, but I'm sure both teams had a role in instigating that um, in terms of jawing back and forth with each with each other. But I mean, yeah, it very could have easily been suspended but i also feel like if you're kentucky at the same time you're like well this is his final game anyway so he's he's already declared for the draft so what are we gonna do might as well send him out there um you know if you're gonna if you're gonna warm up without your shirt on i guess you better go out and run for 233 yards and two touchdowns and win the game so i think you think he backed up the decision to warm up without a shirt on with his play on the field yeah, he definitely went out swinging, but um, yeah, even even before the game, I mean, you know, luckily I got to cover it. I was down there with Evan, and we were watching the game, and we were we were on the field for a little bit, and just watching the pregame warmups. We came, unfortunately, after that whole event happened, um, just standing outside the locker room, and again, you're sitting, you know, it's a it's between two teams, and of course that clip went viral of uh, on the racetrack where the two teams are jarring at one another. Um, but even when the national anthem is going on and everyone's supposed to have their hand over their hearts, uh, 
you know, poor Dalton Keene and Jared Hewitt, and they're just standing out there talking to the referees, and all the Kentucky players are outside the locker room just yelling at them, screaming things that I really don't want to repeat on here. So, like you said, it's just funny. It's a noon game on New Year's Eve, and all of a sudden the stakes were raised from the very get-go. And these teams hadn't played since... 1987 there's no affiliation between the two there's teams no like i don't they don't even really recruit the same areas like i don't think i mean i'm sure maybe some like a couple players knew each other from whatever but like <laughs> there was literally no reason for there to be like as much beef between these two teams as there were um and i just love that it started at the nascar track a couple days before the game um but uh, it gave the game a little extra juice and a little extra intensity, which um, compared to some of the old other bowl games you watch that basically look like a, you know, two teams going through the motions without anything on the line. I mean, there was clearly both teams felt like there was a lot of a lot on the line, even though it was just, you know, the belt bowl at noon on New Year's New Year's Eve. Yeah, both teams definitely very hyped up for this game. Again, this game, you know, Virginia Tech looks good. I think they're, I don't know the exact statistic, but one of, I think the only team to drop 30 points on Kentucky all season. Um, I don't know how far it dates back. I saw somewhere maybe three years. So definitely a really good offensive performance. Defensively, uh, you know, there were stretches where it was good play, caused turnovers, um, but at the same time, it was the Lynn Bowden show six of 12 passing again. He's a wide receiver, 73 yards, one touchdown, one interception, but his impact definitely felt in the ground game, 34 carries, 233 yards and two touchdowns. And going into this game, we both said, you know, what's that mark? And we both said 200. He eclipses that. And that was the number I'm watching the game. I think he was like, just approaching 150 he wasn't that close to 200 um until like the fourth quarter and that was that was also exactly what we said like he's gonna run the ball 34 times they finished with 55 carries as a team like this kentucky team is going to run it 40 to 50 times what is virginia tech's defense gonna look like in the fourth quarter after trying to stop that all day and predictably it wasn't they were tired clearly um uh, based on that long the long drive that won the game for Kentucky but i think it was that drive was really a the com- the combination of the first three quarters of them just constantly running at them and then you know when you can when you can wear down a defense and you got a guy as good as Lynn Bowden you're going to win games so i think that was the difference is just that cumulative wear and tear on that you know leading into that fourth quarter he wasn't that close to that 200 yard mark and then by the end of the fourth quarter, he's at 233. So um, I think that was the big story there, at least for Virginia Tech's defense. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of fans were taking to social media, you know, kind of lamenting Bud Foster in his final game, but saying, you know, you had a month to prepare for this, and yet it seems like Lynn Bowden's doing whatever he wants. He has that long touchdown run. Um, like you said, in the fourth quarter, really shows his dominance when the defense is tired, but when you're looking at these two schools, I mean, is there, is there anything that Virginia tech could have done differently to, to slow him down? I don't know about anything differently. I mean, what he's running isn't necessarily, you know, it wasn't mentally tough for Virginia tech to know what was happening. And I mean, you, you do have to give a lot of credit to Kentucky's offensive line. We talked about that as well. The fact that, that they've had success with this kind of offense all year long running the football when everybody knows that they're running the football. So um, the fact that, you know, I think Virginia Tech's defensive line has played really well this year and you're encouraged particularly about guys like Pollard and Kendricks, but they're still just freshmen. We know there's issues at defensive end in terms of how impactful they are. So I think when you're going up with that kind of, um, defense or defensive line against that that kind of offense, you're going to struggle. And then you look at 
the linebackers, you go in the linebackers, Ashby on a number of plays there, his lack of speed and athleticism, all that you could tell just Bowden running away from him. Hollyfield wasn't his day. It was a Tisdale game. And we saw that because Tisdale played a ton in the ton in the second half. Um, and then you go into the secondary even, and you're missing Farley and Waller. So not a great matchup for Virginia Tech from the start. You subtract two corners. And, I, you know, I think that's what you get. Not only that, but then the coaches as well. I know we touched on that in the last podcast, but I'm glad you hit on the offensive line. I think when you look at Virginia Tech and kind of their weak points against these running quarterbacks, at least the Bryce Perkins game against UVA and, uh, and in this game in particular, one is you have arguably one of the best offensive lines in college football. And then the weak points of the Virginia Tech unit is the defensive line and maybe the safety play coming up and, and making those tackles. A lot of the times I was looking at Reggie Floyd, Divine Diablo, and instead of making a, you know, a smooth motion, uh, a smooth angle to get to the quarterback, they were kind of overrunning the where the quarterback was and then trying to catch him from behind. So uh, you know, in my opinion, it was just it was not a good matchup. And it just makes you wonder what if it were Mississippi State? What if it were Tennessee? Um, you know, Tennessee barely beating Indiana. I just think out of all the matchups, this one just seemed like the worst possible offense to play as the Virginia Tech defense. Yeah. And Bowden, just as a runner, he's not the kind of. Like he's not a traditional running back. Most running backs you can tackle, you make the hit and it'll go down. Bowden it seemed like every every time he was tackled, he was picking up an extra two yards. I think Bud even talked about that after the game is that, you know, even if he just gets back to the line of scrimmage, that's a three yard gain. And, you know, he was turning all those four and five yard gains and the seven and eight yard gains. So I think it's yeah, I you would have loved to say like Oh, they're just going to run the ball over and over again. Virginia Tech should should be able to do that. Should be able to handle that. But you know, Kentucky's offensive line, and they got one of the best players in the country, and that you got to give a lot of credit for them for being being able to have that kind of success. And you know, you I know there's there's an opinion that like Virginia Tech should have done better game planning for them with four weeks off or whatever, but. Kentucky had four weeks off too. And I feel like, I feel like when you talk about like, like taking advantage of time off, it's an advantage for the offense more than the defense, just simply because they're, they're calling the play that the defense has to react to. So like Bud Foster could scheme up everything that he wanted against what he saw on Kentucky's film, but with four weeks off and, you know, I'd, clearly haven't watched the film or know enough to see if this actually happened but you know i think being able to tweak something on offense that makes it look differently than what virginia tech has seen on film is is a bigger advantage offensively or for an offense with time off than for a defense and now specifically lynn bowden i mean i haven't seen a performance like that against a bud foster defense in a very very long time uh evan and i watching the game you know, we're debating is is this the most electrifying performance we've seen in our time covering Virginia Tech? Is there any players? I know it's kind of putting you on the spot here a little bit, um, but but in terms of his performance and and how well he's he's done, do you think that you know he's at the top of that list? Yeah. So there's one game that that this reminded me of watching it. And it was a Virginia Tech loss to East Carolina in Greenville uh, in 2015. I was there. <laughs> it, I was there, too. It was the torrential downpour. Oh, yeah. I think Motley was the quarterback there, but they played... I think Summers. A, Summers was a running back or a wide receiver, and they just switched him to quarterback. Some I just pulled up the box score. He was at 21 carries for 169 yards, two touchdowns, five of eight through the air for 110 yards for one touchdown. So pretty similar to what Lynn Bowden did and just watching this game was it was it was essentially that offense that ECU I mean clearly I don't think Kentucky went back to the 2015 season and and watched what ECU did against they had time they they did have four weeks so um but yeah that was the kind of the game that kept flashing back into my mind watching this 
um, was that James Summers ECU game when um, Tech went down in a torrential downpour in Greenville and lost. So. Yeah, and uh, just shifting things over to the offense for Virginia Tech, do you want to talk about Hendon Hooker? It wasn't the best game for him. 12 of 22, 110 yards, two touchdowns. Uh, you know, the Virginia Tech offense did have Deshaun McLeese, who for some reason is just a god in bowl games. <laughs> uh, 11 carry, or I don't know what, what he finished with. I think it was 11 carries, 126 yards, something around that, that mark. Oh. Um, but I pulled up his stats from the other two bowl games he played in um, in 2017 uh, against Oklahoma State. He had 18 carries, 124 yards. And against Cincinnati last year, um, or I guess two years ago now since it's 2020, uh, but in 2018 against Cincinnati, he had 13 carries for 108 yards. So reaching that 100-yard mark each time, Deshaun McLeese, we could start with him before we get into the big questions about Hennon Hooker. But, I mean, what a performance by him. Yeah, just an awesome performance by him. We, everybody's heard the, the rumors about the decision he's making about whether to continue playing football or just move on after five years. Um, he does have a sixth year of eligibility left. But, I mean, that was a really, really strong Kentucky defense. We talked about it. They're big and they're physical have the 6'9 dude in the middle and the 360-pound guy next to him and McLeese. I mean, McLeese was able to really put forth one of his best games, 11.5 yards per carry. Um, he was a large part of why Virginia Tech scored 30 points and um, was able to be in this game is because Deshaun McLeese. And um, if that's his final game as in a Virginia Tech uniform, that's quite a way to go out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, shifting to Hendon Hooker, though. I so, mean, he- yeah, his line's 12 of 22, 110 yards, two touchdowns. He missed his first five passes were brutal um, and just looked like he was off. Uh, but he, So you take those five passes away, and he can't technically take away, but he's 12 of 17 from that point for 110 yards, which, which seems a little better um, added. 50 yards on the ground. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I think you would have wanted to see more. And I think he didn't get a, as much as help as he wanted from um, his receivers. I think a couple key drops there would have helped him out as well. But, you know, I didn't think it was any different than any other Hendon Hooker game. Like, it seemed like the same kind of offense and the same kind of success that he's had all year. Um but I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's like one of those things where you expect a little better with the time off. But, you know, I think he was basically the same player as he had been since he took over. Absolutely. I think the reason I bring it up, well, one, you know, you have to give credit to to Kentucky. They have the best pass defense in the country. Um, he's going against that. But and two, is it all on him? I think a little bit of it is on Damon Hazleton, uh, maybe Trey Turner. They tried to get him involved in different ways, and it just didn't happen, whether it was the coverage or um, you know, different things. I think highlighted um, his performance with the Damon Hazleton touchdown grab. Um, and, and I wrote about this a little bit, um, but, but essentially he had Damon Hazleton on one side of him one-on-one and he looked to the other side of the formation essentially not even looking at him and then at the last second turned his head and launched the ball no questions asked just trusted that Damon would make the play he did and I think that looks like peak Hendon Hooker it doesn't have to be a touchdown every time but giving his guys a chance to make a play that's what he did I think for large stretches of the game whether he was unable to get the ball to guys you talked about in the beginning, missing the first five passes, or his guys simply just not helping him out, I think that's where you know you have to critique his performance and maybe say that it wasn't his best game and that, like you said, you do expect better heading into this bowl game. Um, of course, there were injury concerns heading into this, whether he would play or not, um, and he suits up and they confirm it on the morning of the game that he will play. 
Um, but overall, I mean, how would you rate it? Yeah, you know, I think he's about a six, five or six, seven, somewhere around there. I mean, I think you touched on the injury. I do wonder how much of a impact that had if he we started hearing about that injury. I don't know what day it is anymore anyway. Um, a handful of days before the game. So at that point, you know, is that a, was that an indication of rust from being off? I don't know, because he kind of righted the ship after that in terms of his accuracy, at least. But um, I still feel like this offense um, with him, and maybe it's maybe it was an indication of how much faith they had in the offensive line, but it wasn't. Um, it kind of felt like they were protecting him still, and, and he kind of had some chains on him as, as far as limiting how aggressive they are with Hooker as a quarterback. And I think that's one of the big things for them to to go away from this offseason is to kind of make him more of a dynamic playmaker as a quarterback. Um, but clearly, taking over midway through this year, you kind of got to adjust on the fly and, and try and manage him as best as you can. So, um, I you know, I didn't have a problem with how he played. It wasn't his best game by any stretch, but... Um, you know, again, he takes care of the ball and and they scored 30 points. So, you know, it, it wasn't a situation where I felt like Hinton Hooker lost the game. Absolutely. Um, and then just moving forward with the offense, or I guess we could say the entire game is uh, a big decision uh, when it was 27 to 24. Virginia Tech is driving. They get all the way down the field. They're close to scoring. Fourth and two. Brad Cornelson says, let's send out the field goal unit. A lot of people were upset about this. I didn't really see it. Um, Kick the field goal. Make the field goal. What a day for Brian Johnson, by the way. Uh, Go up 30 to 24. But then you're put in a situation where Kentucky then has the ball and and, and they want to they know that they have to go for a touchdown at that point. But before that, did you have any problem with them going or not going for it on fourth and two at the 18 yard line? Uh, no. Um, it was actually looking at it play by play fourth and three at the nine. Um, hooker just ran nine yards for, to make it fourth and three, but not in the sense that they were trying to win this game. I think, I think any other game, like this is a exhibition belt bowl game, doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean any other game. Um, if it's like October or November, you know, Pittsburgh game, Georgia Tech game this year, and it's the same kind of situation with that much time left on the clock. I think you have to take the points and you know force them to force them to have to drive the field um, to win the game. But I but. You know, when it's the Belk Bowl and it's and it's New Year's New Year's Eve and this game doesn't mean anything, I kind of feel like you would want them to say, like, screw it, let's go try and win it. I don't think anybody would have... If Justin Fuente said after the game, like, yeah, it was fourth and three and it was kind of a toss-up because it, it is 100% a toss-up of whether you go for it, I think it's justifiable either way. If he, if he said after the game, it was... It's kind of toss up, you know. Normally, we might kick the field goal, but we just decided in the bowl game to go for it at that point. Um, I don't think anybody would blink an eye at that. So that was the only issue. Is I think given the stakes of the game, I don't think there was any reason to be that conservative. But if that was a game that meant something in the conference race or something, then absolutely, with that much time on the clock, he'd take the points. The only counter argument I have, again, it would have been nice. They, you know, get a first down. They can drain the clock. Maybe they reevaluate and kick a field goal later if they don't punch it into the end zone. Um, Maybe they score a touchdown and it puts the game out of reach. Um, But at the same time, going up by six, playing an offense that really only runs the ball. Of course, it ended up working and felt very much like the Notre Dame game where you're giving Bud Foster that opportunity to stop the defense, to stop the opposing offense. Um, and they just keep converting and converting and converting. And eventually that's what happened. And there was a dagger at 15 seconds. But, um, you know, well, overall, I think 
kicking the field goal and, and going up by six against a running offense, maybe not the worst call. Well, yeah, it's not the worst call, and it wasn't the – it's not like that decision, the very next drive, Kentucky scored. It was – right. That was the very next drive. That was the interception to Murray. So it was it was the next drive where Tech goes three and out. Um, and I think that was the Hazleton drop over the middle. Um, that's the drive that if you're going to nitpick any play call, nitpick any of the three play calls there that didn't work. Um, because that's the drive that changed the game. I mean, if... For Tech had the ball on the forty-five on their forty-five, so they're moving into Kentucky territory at that point. Um, so I think that's that's the drive after an interception where you would want to. I mean, if they get a, even a field goal on that on that drive, then it's you know then it's thirty-three to 27, 24, and now they're up nine, and now that field goal you kicked before was is huge. Um, so it's, I, I think the the outcry over that, given what happened in the next two drives, it wasn't until the Kentucky second drive after that decision that, you know, they go on this 18 play eight minute drive, which also who who can expect that? Like, yeah, you you're getting gashed by Lynn Bowden all day, but I think up six, you take Bud Foster forcing them to score the touchdown. Um, versus a, a field goal to tie the game. Damn, that la- that last drive, 18 plays, 85 yards, 8 minutes and 10 seconds off the clock. I mean, just a vintage drive for Kentucky. And then to the- cap it off with a, th- a touchdown pass from Lynn Bowden, out of all, th- out of all ways that uh, Kentucky could have scored, a-, a pass that, and looking back on it, very good coverage across the board. Armani Chapman was the one caught out. It was the only, you know, Lynn Bowden is not a quarterback. He was staring at one read. He was going to make one throw. If he stared at his other three receivers, he probably would not have made that play. Yeah, uh, <laughs> just a tough way to go down. But that whole drive, he just kind of felt like it's. it was the Notre Dame drive all over again, basically. Um, I think that one was even 18 plays, too. But a couple fourth down conversions the fourth and seven that they completed pass on, um, you know, it just felt inevitable once, once the clock started churning towards five, four, three minutes left and they still had the ball and were picking up first downs. Um, the clock was, I mean, it just seemed like it was going to happen. And then of course he comes out with, I mean, at that point, that's, that's the situation you want Bowden to be in at that point is, you know, win the game with your arm. Like it's great that you've run for 230 yards today, but there's 20, 15 seconds left on the clock and it's running. You got to make a throw to win this game. And he made the throw and, um, you know, it's a tough way to go down for Armani Chapman, but, um, you know, I think that was just, just, you know, so they're going to complete a pass every now and then. And it happened against in, in the worst situation. Yeah, again, it's just crazy to me because a lot of those, like a lot of his stats were um, those little passes where he just throws it right in front of him to a running back who essentially is running it and it's counted as a pass. And then you you look at his interception where he, you know, really overthrew his wide receiver, just essentially chucking it down the field, Hail Mary, uh, and Breon Murray just intercepts it and he's just like, thank you. Um, yeah. And then and then there was another one, too, where they called a, a pass interference on Armani Chapman and, it, you know, eventually was overturned the, the interception. But, um, you know, that's all the, that's all his game plan, that was yeah. like, like, get them in third and long. They're not going to run it on every third and long. Eventually, they're going to throw it. And, you know, if he's putting the ball in the air, most of the time, Virginia Tech has the advantage. Absolutely. It's just crazy that in the last moment of the game, it's a perfect throw. But um, and that ends the that ends the Belk Bowl, the last Belk Bowl, a loss for Virginia Tech to move to eight and three. Kentucky wins Um, again. Lynn Bowden going out swinging. But anything to add on this game? No, I think that covers it. Um, Yeah, I think the. I mean, I think one of the other things that we didn't really touch on is just. Hazelton and Turner's inability 
Now, some people will say it's the play calling. Some people will say it's Hooker. But um, I think that's really what that what some of this game comes down to is that Hazleton and Turner had two catches for 30, 32 yards, 33 yards, whatever the math that is. But with with the one touchdown, I think, you know, Hazleton had the big drop um, on the third down that we talked about earlier, and Turner had a big drop late too. Um, and that was the situation. But that was good on good, and we knew it, um, that Kentucky's corners had a great season. Their pass defense was great. And Hazleton and Turner were going to have to make plays to win this game. And I think the Tech's inability to get them the ball more probably limited them from, from you know, scoring more than the 30 points that they did score. Yeah, 1,000%. And not only just as pass catchers, but on the perimeter being asked to block as well. It hasn't been the prettiest out there uh, in run support. So I, I know when you look at both these guys from just a pure talent standpoint, Obviously, both are near the top of the ACC in terms of talents. I think when you have to put it together full package and and being a dog, being a guy that puts in that effort, I think there's still, you know, a little lackluster there. I do wonder, particularly with Turner this year, if our expectations for him were a bit high based based on where he was last year. Um, I'm pulling up his stats right now, but, you know, he was a... His freshman year, he comes in, and he had that shoulder injury. So he, he was he was a slint. He was basically Kashawn King of last year, um, and finished. Let's see if I can figure out how to pull up these stats the right way. He finished this year with thirty four catches for five hundred yards. I think we probably expected a little bit more of him, um, and I think he, that that also includes that early part of the year where he was banged up pretty pretty good and missed missed the Duke game, missed the Miami game. So I think him in particular is still just a sophomore this year. So I think really this would have been his, you know, if Tech can redshirt, could have redshirted him last year, this would have been his redshirt freshman year and nobody would have, would have known very much. So I think next year as a junior is when you really start to see kind of that development take off. So, um, but I just wonder if expectations for him were a little too high this year. Maybe in Damon Hazleton as well. Um, but let's move into some questions and then we can do a little covering of the Virginia, Virginia Tech game. All right, let's jump into it. You got it pulled up? Yep. All right. And again, a lot of the things I tried to omit from the beginning just so we could cover them here. But. ATC4VT wants to know, why didn't we take timeouts when Kentucky had the ball on our three-yard line before the half? Would have saved a possible 30-plus seconds. Yeah, this, this is another situation that I wish Virginia Tech had been more aggressive in simply because of the stakes of the game in that um, they had just pulled within three I think um, and 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 they didn't take the timeouts to kind of to, to go for it like at the end of a game um, I think I think it was very conservative obviously you're just thinking let's go in the half and, and come back out and win it in the second half and you don't want to make that big mistake but I think given the stakes of the belt bowl and the fact that it's an exhibition game with no no real meaning on it. You know, you might as well put Virginia Tech in that position. You might as well test them, I think. I mean, if you really want to get into it, then you could, then that's a perfect opportunity for Hinton Hooker to get experience in that situation before next year. Um, clearly, Fuente was just focused on winning that particular game right there. But I think, you know, the game didn't mean anything if, they, if something goes crazy. The worst thing you can say is we went for it and we lost the belt bowl. Um, so, you know, that's just something across all of college football, I guess, is when you see like conservative play in a bowl game, it's just kind of like, why? why? Like, just go for it. Just, just lay it all out there and, and see what happens. I think one of my biggest criticisms of 
Virginia Tech's offense under Justin Fuente and Brad Cornelson. And it's not just in the bowl games, but any time that Virginia Tech either gets scored on or gets the ball back with under a minute to go in the first half, uh, whether, you know, if it's a close game, most often you're seeing them play very conservatively, run the ball, run out the clock, get to the locker room. If it's a three-point lead, they'll take it. And, you know, that's what ended up happening. Kentucky scores a touchdown. There's 53 seconds left in the half. Deshaun McLeese run, seven yards. You're like, okay, maybe there's a chance here. Defensive offsides gives Virginia Tech a first down. And then, again, they went with a conservative play call, but Hendon Hooker... Um, that kept the ball on a read option, takes it for 14 yards. At that point, Virginia Tech's like, okay, maybe we should actually go for this. A sack, and they're like, you know what? Never mind. We'll just go to the locker room. So it's not only is it conservative, but then it's, you know, when it's time to go, it's already too late. It, there's just a lot of indecisiveness uh, in these critical, critical moments. Yeah, it happened... Earlier this year too, I feel like um, I feel like the UVA game wasn't it at the end of the first half that they they basically weren't going to do anything, and then McLeese ripped off a run down the right side, and then, and then they have the ball around midfield with two seconds left, and they take the knee instead of giving Hooker the opportunity to chuck it at the end zone. In that situation, obviously a you know, a Hail Mary there is a low, low, low percentage play that would have worked out for you. But like if you're if you're not gonna trust Hooker in that to sit in that in that moment, but you're not gonna give him a chance in a game that well, doesn't I, th- I think in the in the UVA game he did do the Hail Mary, which was oh, kicked off. And it was his first interception. It was kinda like throw it out the window, it was Hail Mary. Ah, that's but, right. But anyway, no, seriously, anyways, if you're going to do it in that situation with all those stakes in the Commonwealth Cup, why wouldn't you do it at a bowl game? You right. Know? That's what I was trying to say. Exactly. I got <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> all right. Next question. Greenway VT. Burmeister question mark. He brings something to the competition that most fans are not expecting. So just a little context before I let you go. Braxton Burmeister played at Oregon, transferred in. Waiver was denied. Redshirt or lost this year actually because he was already a redshirt. Um, so he'll be a redshirt junior next fall. And former four-star guy, dual-threat quarterback, uh, coming to the East Coast, and there's a lot of expectations for him. Burmeister's the guy that we've kind of heard about for, I guess, since he arrived on campus as being a, a legitimate candidate to start next year once he's eligible. Um, some people said he might have even started this year if he was eligible. Um, but I think it's going to be really hard for him to unseat Hooker. I think um, 13 touchdowns, two interceptions, 1,500 yards passing um, brings, a, brings a huge element on the ground with his feet. I mean, I think, he's, I think Hooker is exactly the kind of quarterback that Virginia Tech wants. And I think, I think, I mean, everybody's talked about it the last three years about Fuente needing to get another quarterback, um, get his starting quarterback back for another year. He thought he was going to have it with Josh Jackson, and he breaks his leg. Thought he was going to have it with Ryan Willis, and he's not as good as expected. Now he thinks he's going to have it with Hendon Hooker, and I think that's. I don't expect Burmeister um, or Quincy Patterson to really unseat hooker given that there's a very real chance that Hendon hooker could Joseph Fuente could have his starting quarterback through the 2021 season. Um, and I think that's a huge, huge positive. And I, and I don't think Hooker's going to do anything based on what Fuente said leading up to bowl prep about how he stand behind hooker. And you can tell that he knows exactly what he's doing and has like talk about expected outcomes and how important that is to, Justin Fuente, it seems like Hooker is there as a quarterback, and I don't see him giving that up. Yeah, if there if there is a prophecy, though, we haven't seen the same quarterback uh, for more than what four games or yeah. so. so. He makes it a... out of September next year. We're in uncharted territory. If if Hooker is the starting quarterback on October first, he will stay that way. If not, <laughs> then it's Burmeister's show. Uh, in all seriousness, Burmeister, a very good prospect. 
I think the good part about it is that when you look at the quarterback room, maybe the past two years, you kind of have all these different types of quarterbacks that do different things. Maybe, you know, Ryan Willis specializing as a passer, uh, Hendon Hooker, maybe more of your, you know, you can do a lot of different things with, and then Quincy Power, uh, Quincy Patterson, more of your power quarterback sweep kind of guy, you know. I think when you look at the quarterback competition heading into next fall, you have a lot of guys that can run the offense the way it's supposed to be, dual threat guys, uh, maybe all different in in what they do as dual threat people and, and, you know, different arm talents and whatnot. But, yeah, like you said, Doug, I don't see Burmeister as a guy that's going to unseat Hooker. I think the biggest part of the competition will be who's going to be number two, who's the guy backing up Hooker because – you have to imagine a scenario where number three is just he wants to go somewhere else for an opportunity. It's just that's how college football is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think you touched on an interesting point about the what the quarterback room has been and what it is now in terms of the similar similarities of them. But it's also similarities. In ter- it's also different in terms of, you know, their experience level and how much I think where they are development development wise. I mean, last year the competition was Willis, Hooker, and Patterson, and then Burmeister came in late, but you know, you couldn't really count on him being eligible. But it's it was basically Willis who was proven and then Hooker and Patterson who basically everybody thought was still had developing to do. Um hadn't proven themselves at all. Um the last time we'd seen Patterson before last year was throwing like two passes and spot duty the year before. So the last time we saw Hooker was on that one snap against Boston College two years ago. So so you go from a quarterback competition with one guy returning with experience and two complete unknowns to Hooker who started eight games this year to Patterson who started one and played in a handful of others, including against UNC in a big way. Um, and the Burmeister who clearly played, um, played a good bit at Oregon. So the quarterback room is flipped, not only in that they're all kind of the same style, but also they all played a little bit, which I think is a huge difference. Next question, cigar guy, how much do you think Keyshawn King progresses next year? Do you think he'll bulk up enough just to be able to give Herbert some competition for the starting job? you can take a crack at this first yeah i think so he also said cigar guy also hopes he red shirts i don't think there's any chance he won't (laughs) red shirts but i do think i mean this is probably mission number one for uh, ben hilgart this this offseason is to get him 15 10 15 20 pounds something where he can take on a bigger role um i think king knows what is in he- ahead of him. So I think that's encouraging. And I think bringing in Herbert, probably a good thing. So that it's not on a platter for, for King. And so I think I, I definitely expect him to, to add that 10, 15, 20 pounds that he needs and, and, and be a, I think he's going to be a much more productive player. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's given how good he was, you know, Clearly, he was limited throughout the year. Um, I think they were protecting him a little bit in that sense, given that him and McLeese are the same player, essentially, at this point. But we, I mean, we heard all August how impressive he was in terms of how good he is and how talent, naturally talented he is. He's just not physically there yet. So I think once he's physically there, um, I wouldn't be surprised if he's a starter. Yeah. A hundred percent, I think. Um, just quickly... In in terms of like Braxton Burmeister and Khalil Herbert, I know you know they're big time prospects. Khalil Herbert being out of the transfer ranks and what he did at Kansas, but because they're not in the situation yet, and you know playing in a game, you know because they're the unknowns, I think fans are quick to jump to them and say they could be that missing piece. Um, but I think Keyshawn King might as well be the starter next year. Maybe Khalil Herbert's the guy that comes in behind him is the rotation guy, but you know, it's a good problem to have two very, very talented running backs. Well, I think you need two running backs in today's world, no doubt. Um, and, and Herbert, if, if McLeese is going to leave Herbert gives you that 
safety safety net almost of of having someone with experience who's had some sort of success at the college level. I think without him, you go through Jalen Holston and Caleb Stewart and Taj Gary and all those guys. You don't really know. There's a big hole there. It's at the number two running back spot. So I think, I think with Herbert now, you kind of fill in your two running backs and you're good to go. All right. A few more questions from Kenny Powers, 2014 with the profile picture of Adam Lechtenberg. Love it. Um, let's just rapid fire some of these. Why not use Quincy Patterson on the goal line? I think Hendon Hooker is about as good as Quincy Patterson running the football. Yeah. Uh, why didn't we run a single tick play? Don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's the other. I mean, this all comes down to the bowl game, but I mean, that's a play call and. A risk. He means trick play, doesn't he? Yes, he means trick play. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make a... Uh, never mind. Never mind. Yes. Better to hold on to that one. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Why, why don't you run a trick play in any game? It's like... Do they have something they felt good about? Did they? I don't know. It's just the way the game went, I guess. As you can tell with their decisions at the end of the first half and not going for it on fourth and, and three... Um, they, they were, were playing not, very conservative the entire they, game. They were not about to let Tavion Robinson or Oscar Bradburn get after it. They weren't. I think they just really felt a lot of pressure to send Butt out on a good note, and it backfired. Um, <laughs> all right. Roanoke Hokey Noke. Roa Hokey Noke. Do you believe in ghosts? If no, follow-up question. How do you explain injured player sightings on the sideline when clearly Fuente does not allow injured players on the sideline? A little bit of context for those listening and maybe aren't on the boards all the time. Uh, a UNC fan came over to the board and pretty much ripped into Fuente and, and just said that you know he has all these superstitions and doesn't allow injured players to be on the sidelines. Um, even though Tyrell Smith was there coaching up the offensive line. Yeah, clearly false. And, you know, it was a really good thread. So all I have to say about this is that if if you're listening and you're not on the board and you're not a subscriber, you should definitely subscribe to VT Scoop um, so you can get on get it on that entertainment. I did like the, the retaliation post <laughs> about Mac Brown rumors. Um, so so just want to give a good good job to everybody on the board. Harvard Hokey, where do you think we can expect to see the most improvement next year among defensive positions? Uh, I like, I actually think it's the defensive line again. Um, Hewitt Crawford back as seniors at defensive tackle. I think that's huge, especially for Crawford, who will no doubt benefit again. Um, I think Pollard and Kendricks with a year in the weight room and other years sophomores. And another year with Hewitt and Crawford, which means they don't have to play a ginormous amount of snaps. Um, and then I and then I do think the defensive ends simply get better, which is based on experience. Garbit hopefully will stay healthy. Belmar, he is who he is, but he'll be in his third year as a starter. Adams, Griffin, Beckton, the defensive ends they're bringing in the. In the offseason, I think there's a lot of potential for improvement at defensive end as well. Um, and that's a good segue into also they have a deep couple, uh, a probably a new defensive line coach who seems pretty impressive if if it's who it seems like it's going to be um, pairing with Daryl Tapp. So I think defensive line probably. Again, subscribe and you'll know the names. <laughs> we'll tell you all the names. Um, Hokey Junkie wants to know the timelines for the remaining coaching hires. Perfect timing. <laughs> wow. Uh, it could be out as soon as this podcast is out. Um, but the way Virginia Tech handles things, I'm just going to say this week. It, I don't don't hold me to it. But we've heard a lot of things and it takes time and there's negotiations and um, crossing the T's, dotting the I's. But uh, I think the ink is f pretty dry on this one uh, for the defensive line uh, in terms of defensive backs or cornerbacks coach. I have no I have no clue when that timeline will be. So I just looked it up and I know. I know that most of the class is 
is is done. Um, Tech might be sniffing around on a couple late prospects or something like that. But the dead period ends January 16th. So I know Matej just said this week, but by by the 16th probably (laughs) seems good. (laughs) Yeah. And I will say everyone's on break right now. And that includes the people doing all the paperwork. So either this was done a long time ago and they're scheduling the announcements. But as far as I'm concerned, everyone's on vacation. Yeah. Um. I think they'll be 16th. back. I think they'll be back by the 16th, though. And <laughs> all right, next one. Uh, also from Harvard Hokie, what's your take on the team's psyche heading into the off season? Um, I saw some of the players after the game uh, just walking around, and you know they were a little bummed, but I think for the most part, they're very excited. It's the closest group I've seen. In all my time covering, you know, all these teams, maybe Frank Beamer's uh, teams rivaled the one that I saw after the game, after the Belk Bowl. But, you know, a lot of guys in groups, nobody isolated. Um, And I think for the most part, a lot of these players are very excited for 2020. I think that, you know, they have chips on their shoulder. One, the UVA game, that Notre Dame game that kind of being the gauge of this is an elite program. This is where you need to be in order to be in the conversation. And I think it's a, a group that's that enjoys each other. They're eager to get better. And I think they really want to, you know, they know what they have in that locker room and all the talent, but now it's just time to put it together. They see the same things that we see in terms of who is returning off this group. I don't think it's, um, I think that was, that might be the most important thing of how Virginia Tech turned this thing around is for them to to believe in in the talent that they have in the room. So now that they see that they're returning 20, 20 of 22 starters, something like that, um, I think there's a lot of belief that there's enough talent on this team to, to, to really do some things next year. Um, and then I think also probably the last two losses of the year, particularly that UVA loss. Um, I don't think there's going to be a motivation issue this offseason in terms of knowing what they need to do to be successful next year and then also having that motivation to, to, to get the cup back. So, I've, you know, I think I think the psyche is exactly where it needs to be. Um, and that's even with expected attrition coming up. Clearly there's... Um, some players farther down the depth chart that are going to be moving on and stuff like that. Um, but I think the core of the team, the first two lines of the depth chart about at about every position are right where they need to be. VTUD, really, really good question. It's been said that Hamilton wants to increase the size of his defensive line, but that will take several years to accomplish by recruiting high school players. Do you think that Tap and the new defensive line coach will make a strong push for two to four JUCO slash transfer defensive linemen over the next 12 months? Now, I think it's evident that there needs to be better production out of defensive ends. I don't, I think the interior of the defensive line is okay. Maybe more depth. Um, you know, guys like Joshua Fuga will be coming along. Uh, Mario Kendricks, Narelle Pollard already rotational guys. But um, in, in terms of that ends group, I really do think Virginia Tech needs to bring in a Juco or a transfer, honestly, someone in the portal. I know, um, that there's a Temple defensive end that Virginia Tech has been linked with, a very productive guy that had nine-plus tackles for losses in each season that he played. Um, but, you know, right now with Belmar and Garbett, I believe they had five sacks between the two. It's just not going to get it done if you want to be, you know, at the top of the ACC Coastal and pushing Clemson uh, for an ACC championship. Yeah, I think you saw... A, a microcosm of the strategy with um, the three defensive end commits that they got right before signing day. Uh, I think you touched on defensive tackle. I think that position is fine for the future. They obviously need to keep recruiting it. Um, but I, I, I do think if you're going to sniff around on a Juco um, or a transfer defensive 
or transfer defensive lineman, it's going to be an end. Um, just in terms of trying to trying to generate a pass rush with that front four, Hewitt, Crawford, Pollard, Kendricks are solid, and will get better, but. They're not going to be pass rushers. Gar- Belmar is not going to be a pass rusher. Garbit is probably the one guy. And then a guy like maybe Javion Beckton can 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 kind of um, take the next step. And given his size, I think that's he's the prototypical in you're looking for. Can he get there? Um, we'll see. But yeah, I think there's no doubt that they're probably they probably have a text alert for the transfer portal or whatever <laughs> alert it is whenever defensive end enters <laughs> you send me a text he'll coach you up <laughs> yeah <laughs> sale might what are you wearing camo crocs <laughs> i've got uh, a i've got a villanova wildcats long sleeve shirt and a deep run wildcats pair of athletic shorts on um so for all you wildcats out there um, still represents <laughs> Red Hokey. Why does Corny love the quarterback power sweep with a quarterback who avoids contact? Uh, I don't think Hendon Hooker avoids contact. Um, he's not a battery ram by any stretch, but you know, he's the kind of guy, kind of like Lynn Bowden, in that when he, when he, gets tackled he's kind of slippery and he finds a way to kind of turn twist and turn and fall forward so um i think Hendon hooker is a perfect quarterback for power sweeps if that's if you want him to be a part of the running game i do i would like to see him even hooker i don't know he's what six four six five two twenty right now i would like to see him get with Kashawn King in the weight room and add another 10 to 15 pounds if you can to just kind of, cause you do kind of get a little um, wary of seeing him run over and over again and get hit that much. Um, so I would like to see him bulk up a little bit more, but I think as far as him and the running game, um, you know, that's one of his big advantages, I think. And I think it's smart to take advantage of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, We'll finish off the questions with Kenny Powers again, 2014 Adam Lechtenberg. Should college have pass interference as a reviewable play? No. Uh, I think we saw in the NFL this year how that has not gone according to plan. Um, Essentially, when people review it, it doesn't get overturned um, unless it's blatantly blatant. Uh, Even then, it, it still sometimes it doesn't get overturned. Yeah, so I think that's a really tricky play to to bring into it. Um, you know, I know I know there was that one in the bulk bowl that they called on Chapman. I think that was a pick by somebody. Um, I think it was Chamari Connor. I think it was Connor. Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't think it's like there's enough things that get reviewed and there's enough stoppages and play and that TV guy comes out with a sign way too much saying there's two and a half to three minutes left in the TV timeout. Um, So no, I do not want pass interferences to be challenged all the time. In principle, I like the idea if there were to be a review for something else other than targeting uh, at the same time, you know, sometimes when we're looking at even the targeting play, um, you know, everyone that watched it on their TV said, no, it's not targeting. And I'm watching that they're live and I'm screaming, that's targeting definition. Even in the Belk Bowl, turns out it wasn't targeting. But, you know, I think with, you know, so many people not knowing what targeting is, pass interference, just all these different calls, it makes it impossible to actually review things. So I think in principle, yes, I would love to see you know, different types of, of flagrant fouls reviewed, but in actuality, I don't think it would help at all, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think the easier solution is to just train the refs better so they don't miss pass interference. Um, yeah. I don't think we need coaches and certainly players and fans dissecting every pass interference call. 
All right. Shall we move into basketball? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do a let's just do a quick recap. Uh, we've already kept a lot of you here for a long time. Um, this one was tough. Again, <laughs> we're talking, you know, both games tough. Uh, Virginia Tech travels to Charlottesville to play number 19, Virginia. And Virginia does what Virginia does. Pack line defense, Tony Bennett. Under 40 points, 65 to 39. Kentucky almost scored more points than Virginia Tech in basketball. Yeah, uh, this is about what you would expect against a, for Virginia Tech's current roster, as young as they are and as limited as it is um, against a, a, a UVA team that that is a full program plug it in and keep going um tony bennett they're not as strong offensively as they were last year but um, defensively they are brutally tough and tech just doesn't have the players right now um to compete with that and you know you saw that throughout the game and i they they certainly tried their fair share of three-pointers but it's pretty obvious what's going to happen when that much pressure is on you to make three pointers to say in the game. And, you know, I think as young as they are, that, that just, um, <laughs> that's tough for, for Tech's young players to handle at this point. Um, and, you know, they lost to one of the best teams in the country and the defending national champions who played, played Virginia Tech exactly like they play most teams. And that's, what's going to happen. And again, Syracuse scored 34 points against Virginia. I know maybe Syracuse down this year, maybe not the best comparison, but Virginia Tech is rebuilding. And I think so far they've exceeded expectations, uh, beating, you know, number three, Michigan State um, and, and, you know, playing tough in the Maui tournament, of course, against really good teams. Um, So, so far, I think they've, you know, maybe gotten a few wins uh, maybe the Clemson and Michigan State stick out as maybe wins they shouldn't have gotten and then, you know, lost to pretty much everyone that they should have lost to. So it's pretty on pace. I think where people become a little disappointed is the margin, obviously scoring 39 points and losing 65 to 39. It's not the best showing. People want to see the team being competitive. But like you said, Doug, they live by the three and they die by the three, four of 25, 16% from beyond the arc. And this was a team that was number one in three point field goal percentage and makes yeah, in the ACC. Losing big on the road to UVA is nothing new for Virginia Tech, even going back to Buzz Williams. Last year's team lost 81 to 59 in Charlottesville. Um, 2017, they lost 71 to 48. In Charlottesville, 2016, they lost 67-49 in Charlottesville. Um, a couple tight wins sprinkled in there. But, I mean, playing UVA at Charlottesville with their defense, it's not a, not a great matchup for Virginia Tech. <laughs> I will say, I was, I was optimistic heading into the game. If When UVA comes to Castle Coliseum, you just never know. There's a different lighting in Castle Coliseum. It helps the home court shooters. You know, maybe a guy like Braxton Key is blinded by those lights and Kihai Clark doesn't drive, you know, relentlessly to the rim. And all of a sudden, it's not just Landers Nolly. And maybe it's PJ Horn instead of being 0 for 9 from 3, maybe he's 5 for 7. Just saying, there's, you yeah, know, when I mean, they play at home, it's a little bit easier. It's yeah, it'll be completely different. UVA is not a good offensive team, so if Virginia Tech is even, you know, a little bit better um, on offense, it'll be a closer game in Blacksburg, I think for sure. Um, that's another thing that happens pretty regularly. They Tech lost by twenty-two last year in Charlottesville, and then lost by six in Blacksburg. They lost by um, in twenty seventeen. They lost by twenty three in Charlottesville and then 12 days later they won by two so um it's always tech always plays better at home and I think UVA's limitations on offense this year yeah I agree it'll be closer and and just again throughout the season I think it'll be you know 
obviously it'd be nice to see someone outside Landers Nolly stepping up to the plate. And I think in a few games uh, we've seen that, but uh, just for you know the course of the season, I think Virginia Tech can be a dangerous team if they're hitting their shots. Um, like always, like we saw with the Buzz Williams teams, if they're hitting perimeter shots, um, they play tough on defense. They always have a shot against the Dukes, against the North Carolinas, Louisvilles. Um, I think, you know, particularly with this team reloading and getting a lot of new guys, new faces into the system and Mike Young kind of preaching different things. It's going to be, you know, don't expect to, to win a lot of these ACC games. But I think there will be a lot of surprises and some nights where you say this team can be really good. And if that's their identity for the future, then, you know, everything's going according to plan. I think already you're kind of seeing that this team next year or the year after is going to be really good. But um, as far as this year, yeah, I think you're going to see there's going to be some games that you feel good about and they lay an egg. There's going to be some games that you don't feel good about and they surprise you a little bit. And then, you know, when they're playing Duke, EVA, Florida State, Louisville, you know, I think the likelihood is that they'll get stomped in those games. Um, But I think this year in particular kind of feels like the ACC's down a good bit. It does. You know, I don't think going into like Clemson, NC State, Syracuse coming up Tuesday night, um, Wake Forest, Georgia Tech. I mean, Georgia Tech just beat UNC, who is struggling this year. They're hurt. They are very uh, hurt. Yeah, but, I mean, Georgia Tech beat them at UNC. Georgia Tech's a 7-7 seven and seven basketball team. So I think there's a lot of, lot of games on the schedule where um, Tech could very well win the game. I'm not expecting a bubble a bubble run or anything like that i think tech will probably win around six acc games six seven acc games and you know are they playing 18 or 20 this year i think they're playing 20 20 so from this point they'll go what's that they'll go 17 more games i believe five and (laughs) five and 18 from here on out hold that thought (laughs) or something like that uh that math didn't add up, but yeah, you know, I think it'll be a struggle at times. And then the main thing is just like looking at the team going into next year and the year after when Nolly's a sophomore. Unless he declares. Aline's a sophomore. Um, Ojiako looks like he's progressing fine. Um, so I think, I think you just view this season in the, in the lens of like these guys clearly have, Talent, they're just an inexperience, and you know, you roll with the punches, rolling with the punches, <laughs> swinging for Lynn Bowden. Did I just Lock- finish with a Lynn Bowden joke? You did, know. you did. Um, wrapping up there, any final thoughts on anything that we've spoken about? No, I don't think so. I think it's a weird time. The I don't know what to do with my life. Yeah. (laughs) Suddenly the football season's over. It's like, uh, we got a long ways to go until Liberty. Yeah. Liberty is a very, very long time away. Of course, we'll be on here and we'll be discussing a lot of the big storylines over the course of the off season, you know, picking up interesting topics and whatever and get your questions of course and to everyone listening thank you so much and we will see you again shortly